Good evening. My name is Carol, and I am an alcoholic. I'm a substitute. Um, I am just telling you that ahead of time. I'm a substitute. Dimitri had something come up at the last minute, and I came down here to see Tim, and he said, oh, here we go. And uh, I'm of the old school. You never say no. And I do believe, even though I'm a substitute, that it's always an honor and a privilege to be asked to participate in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I'm just amazed at the energy in this room and the vitality in this room. This is what an AA is supposed to be. You know, we're not a glum lot. We're supposed to be laughing and cheering and carrying on, you know. And uh, when I first came to AA, I thought, Jesus, God, I'm sentenced to a room full of bulbous-nosed old men, chanting, <laughs> waiting to die. And I see all these gorgeous, young, handsome men standing up here as newcomers getting chips. <laughs> I might be old, but I'm not dead. <laughs> so again thank you tim it is an honor uh, my vital statistics are i am an alcoholic i have a sobriety date it's february 16th 1982 it's the only sobriety date i've had and a lot of people are absolutely amazed at that including me um i have a home group it's the monday night seal beach speakers meeting which i think is the best meeting in all of alcoholics anonymous and i believe that's how you should feel about your home group my current sponsor is June G. I've never asked anyone to sponsor me. I've been appointed to all of them. And uh, Lynn Wilder appointed me to June. And uh, she's the one who keeps me right-centered in the middle of the road. I call June when I screw up. I don't call her when I'm doing something to brag about anything good I'm doing. I call her when I screw up and when she stops laughing at me, she says, maybe you should add another meeting, you know? And she keeps me right smack in the middle, which I believe is exactly where we're safe. We're safe when we're in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'm a Boston Irish Catholic, which enables me membership from birth. I uh, come from a real Irish neighborhood. Men were drunk, women were angry. Uh, previous to that, my mom and my mom met my dad when she was a private duty nurse in Boston, in this luxurious suite in a Boston hospital. And they hooked up and got married. And she presented him with Irish triplets, which uh, she gave three children in two years. And he moved them down to Miami, Florida. It was the heyday of things that were going on in Cuba at the time. And here she is in Miami, away from everybody, with these three little children. And he's bringing the gambling junkets back and forth to Cuba, leaving a glamorous life and forgetting that he had a family at home. So she had to work full time as a nurse to put bread on the table and come home. And there was fighting and there was arguing. And she finally said she had enough, so she divorced him. And she brought us three little kids up to her dad's house, the place that she always wanted to get away from. But she had no place else to fulfill her obligations. We moved into this four up, four down house in Lowell. And, uh, you know, there were two uncles and uh, my grandfather, my mother, my two brothers and myself. And it was crowded and it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Um, I had uh, four uncles that were in World War II. Three of them came home. One moved to New York and the other two were around Lowell. And it's not unusual in my house on Saturday night, they'd gather around the table. You know, all the Irish ever need is a kitchen table and a front porch to keep them happy. That's where they congregated. And the drinking would start and the, the laughing and the conviviality would all be good, you know. And uh, next thing you know, they'd be crying and sobbing. These godly souls tearing, piercing cries about what they had experienced in the war. And, you know, and I'd be sitting there just 
not understanding these, the sound of these tears. And the next thing you know, they'd be blacking out, fighting, knocking each other around. It wasn't uncommon in my kitchen to have black, black eyes and bloody noses on a regular basis. My mother believed in discipline. And uh, she was a rageaholic. She was always angry. And it was just crazy. It was just absolutely crazy. And after that fight, they probably they decided the enemy was in the backyard, so they'd get their guns out and they'd get us kids out of bed and they'd be in the backyard shooting up the neighborhood. And, you know, I just knew this is the thing, right? There's something wrong here, you know? And, uh, and you know, I was the baby. I was the only girl. And I'd sit there and I'd wonder. And I never felt right. I never knew I was afraid until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and you gave me a label for how I felt. But I hit out, I had my first addiction when I was really young. And my first addiction was reading. I did not read to learn. I did not have any goals to be anything. I read to escape. And I grew up reading these novels. I loved these novels, you know, and they were, I set my goals and my plans. First plan I had was I was going to get out of Lowell, Massachusetts. And the other three goals I set for myself is I was going to grow up and travel the world around, wear beautiful clothes and have all these handsome men chasing me. And thanks to alcohol, I achieved all those goals. Um, I was a real geek. I was a real nerd. I'm a bookworm. I'm a nerd. You know, I love school. I love science. I love Latin. I just love Latin. And I remember, I remember this recently that I would sit there and I love conjugating the verb love. I am loved. I love. I am loved. I am loving. And just sit there with my heart just going someday. Someday someone will love me because I was always a nuisance. I was always a burden. And I was told this almost on a daily basis. And so this is how I grew up. I, um, I got into my senior year of high school and I had to get out of there. So I went to my mom and I said, I want to be a nurse if I can go to this hospital in Boston. And she thought that was a grand idea. So I applied and I got accepted. So off to Boston I go. And it's the 60s. There's a song out of the time, Scotch and Soda. I like to back up and tell you what I looked like when I got there. As I said, I had excellent manners, but no social skills whatsoever. I was as skinny as a pencil. I had bright red hair that stuck out to here. I had freckles everywhere, and I spit at you and I talked. And that's a vision for you, right? <laughs> and uh, I get to school, I get to my class, and they give me my dormitory. And I'm in my room, and the next thing I know, there's a on the door. And all my classmates are going down. All my classmates were going down the peppermint lounge in the combat zone. When I like to go, I'll go anywhere I'm invited. So I got all dressed up and down to the combat zone. I went to the peppermint lounge. And as I said, there was a song out, Scotch and Soda. So I shimmied up to the bar and I had a Scotch and Soda. And it's holy water. I still think it's a shame when that normal people drink it. They don't appreciate it the way we do. And it's instantly, my hair got straight. Those freckles disappeared. I stopped spitting at you when I talked. I grew bumps where I needed them. I could dance in time to the music of the Peppermint Lounge. All these men telling me how sexy and how smart I was, I loved it. And you've heard a lot of speakers say, say this, but for the first time in my entire life, I could just breathe. I could fit into my own skin. I drank myself pretty that night. It was, mar it was so great, I could hardly wait to do it again. I'm a blackout drinker from the get-go, but I never thought, thought there was a problem until I came to AA and I found out that was not the goal. But for me, it was, it was just the way it happened. I um, was one of those people that I was out there drinking and carousing around every single night I could. You know, it was like I said, it was the 60s. I was a good student. I'd get up at Dark 100 and put on that uniform with so much starch you could walk to work by itself. 
I'd stop by the oxygen tent and take a couple of whiffs, you know, so I'd get going for the day. You know, they're doing it all over California now with some beauty treatment or health treatment. I was doing it in the 60s. and I don't get any credit for it whatsoever. <laughs> and it worked. And I, even from the get-go, there were those days I'd say, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm going to go home. I'm going to study. Everything's going to be good. And as soon as that came on my door, I was off and running. Uh, my story can be summed up in two lines. Alcohol gave me wings to fly and took away the sky. It opened up. I just thought of freedom, free at last. I graduated and I got a job at the New England Deaconess Hospital. And uh, it was cold. It was bitter cold. It was February. And I had a Florida orange in my hand. And I looked at the wind factor up above on the thermometer. And it was like 40 degrees below zero. And I said, I am out of here. I am out of here. So I went, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Miami won, so off to Miami I went. And I got to Miami, I had a couple of bucks in my pocket and I, I had a relative there that I stayed with for a while. And you know, it, then I got a job at this little dog in the box type place. You know, there's not much socializing going on there. And all I did was go back and forth to work, you know, go to the grocery store, whatever. And there was a bunch of new, uh, people, girls, putting up a notice for a roommate. And so I checked it out. And they said they were all airline stewardesses traveling all the time and gone all the time. And they had this big house in Miami and wanted somebody who basically would be there. So I went and checked it out. It's a big mansion on the Miami River, you know, Olympic size swimming pool, three car garage. And I looked at it and I moved in. And I moved in and I made sure that place was perfect. I had a yard man, a pool man, a man for all occasions. I just, I was all but blowing dust out of the keyhole, scrubbing the pool with a toothbrush. They were not going to ask me to leave. I didn't know I was a perfectionist when I was falling off bar stools, but I was a perfectionist there, you know, and, uh, and uh, they came home once and I said, God, all you do is work and take care of this place. Don't you? You, should come, you should come out with us. And there was a party the following Friday at the Quarterdeck Club. And this is the day of the private key clubs. And they said, there'll be a big party there Friday night. We'll pick you up and take you. I was so excited about going to a party. I went out and I bought a new hunting outfit. You guys know what they are. They slipped down in here and cut up to there. I was dressed on Wednesday. I had no idea where I was going, but I was ready, you know, and uh, they picked me up and down we went to the, this part of town, the dark part of town. I shouldn't have been there. It was down the, down the alley, up the stairs, knocked three times, you know, what's the password? And the door finally opened and here comes addiction number two. It was so glorious. The smoke was so thick, you couldn't see the hand in front of you. The music was playing, the clinking of the glasses. And when that smoke cleared, I looked into these big brown eyes and I fell in love. I love love at first sight. I always have, I still do. If I have to think about it, I want nothing to do with it. Anyway, I looked at this guy and you know, just instantly I fell in love with this man. And he was an international yachtsman of the professional variety. He did not own the yachts, he raced them. He was considered one of the best racers in the world at the time. And you know, I chased him until he caught me. And, uh, you know, and I, believe in, I believe in soulmates. I truly believe he was my soulmate. I love this man with all my heart and soul, and I know he did me too. We sailed the Atlantic. We sailed the Pacific. We skied in Aspen. We fished in Baja. We had the most glorious life ever. And the only reason that marriage fell apart was because of alcohol. He never had the opportunity to come here and tell you what happened on his version. It's my version. I'm here tonight so you hear my version. And I did not know this for a long, long time, but in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that when I pick up a drink, I'm bodily different from my fellow man. And it took me a long time to identify with this, but I look back on it and it was absolutely true. You know, when I start pick up a couple of drinks, 
you know, I see how he's not doing for me, or I'm not living, what I don't have. I, I see it. I don't see anything wrong with me at all, but I can see what I don't have out there. And, uh, you know, I'm a mother's daughter. I tell him. I just tell him exactly how I feel about this. And my tongue drips acid and cuts like a razor blade. That's who I am. And I'm not proud of this, but I'm reporting to you what I'm like when I pick up a drink. And my feet take me places I shouldn't be going, doing things I shouldn't be doing. And it was getting kind of complicated. It was getting bad. I'd go home after being drinking with my friends and, you know, he'd be there and I'd throw a punch and he'd throw a punch. You know, I was through the first one. It was a whole brouhaha. We had the police, we had the ambulance, we had the firemen, we had it all going on on my finger up the entire time. You know, if only you, if you did this, it's not my fault, only you. And, you know, I went out one night, I was getting fed up with this. I went out one night and I found his replacement. Same man with a different face. So I divorced him and I moved to Oregon. You know, and this guy was a pilot, and this was good because I was tired of sailboats. So up to Oregon I went, and, um, you know, lo and behold, the same thing's happening again. I'm confused. How did this happen again? And we had a horrible fight one night, horrible fight, and he stormed out. And the next thing I know, the police were banging at my door to tell me he had been killed in a head-on collision by a drunk driver. And all I could think about is, what about me? What's going to happen to me? This is what I'm like when I drink. I am not a nice person. And I had friends in Laguna Beach, so I got in my car and I came down on Laguna Beach. And all my friends were cocktail waitresses drinking in the bars and working in the bars of Laguna and Newport Beach and making all this money. They were all college graduates, but they were working away, making all this money. But I wasn't ready to give up my career. So I got a job at the Mission Hospital and I'd be out drinking with them all night. And I'd get in the morning, have to get up at dark 100, go to work. The patients are throwing up. I'm throwing up and they wanted me to take care of them. It got sloppy. So I, too, had a career change. I became a cocktail waitress. And I moved up to Newport, and I got a job at the cannery restaurant because all my friends were up there. And I started making all this money. Now, I thought I was living a pretty glamorous life. When I was in Florida, I learned all about sailing. And now I'm in California. I learned all about surfing. So I'm at the beach surfing all day, going to work at night, not knowing what I'm doing, laughing the whole time, making all this money. And they told me, don't put it in the bank because the IRS will find out about it. You know, so I'm a team player. I didn't put it in the bank. I spent it. I had paintings from Laguna. I had paintings from the floor to the ceiling. I had plants and trees. And this, I moved up to Lido. I had a little place on Lido. I had two Siamese cats because one of anything is never enough. And I'm all nested in. But it gets to be February again. There's something about the cold. I do not like the cold. And I was getting a little bit lonely. And, you know, I don't want another relationship. I'm beginning to feel like a black little spider at this point, you know? I mean, one divorce and one died. And, ah. So I found the perfect solution. And the perfect solution for me was the married bartender over the Red Onion. Because we all know that those married men don't leave their wives, right? We left it like that. I didn't even like this man. I just like having an affair with him. I just liked him there when I wanted him there. And gone when I wanted him gone. There was no such thing as what's for dinner. What are you doing with the money? Why is it the house? None of that. But Clancy was my sponsor yeah, for a while. And he taught me that alcoholic women of my kind can only be bad for as long as they can be bad. Then they have to be good again. And I was going along pretty happily for a while. But then all of a sudden, I was getting really feeling pretty tacky about this whole thing because he was married to a friend of mine. I was feeling tacky about that, you know, <laughs> you know, and so I decided I should end it. So I, I broke up with him and I went to Mexico with somebody else and I was gone for three weeks. And when I came back, he had a moment of clarity, decided he wanted to spend his life with me. His wife and he had already filed for divorce. She had moved to Colorado and he's mine all mine. 
I told you I didn't like this man. I just like having an affair with him, but I didn't want to look bad. So I lived with him for another seven years just to make sure. <laughs> Every pot finds a lid to fit it, and he certainly was mine. Anything I wanted, anything I inferred that I wanted to do, right away, right away, right away. I got everything I wanted. And, you know, we just kept, I kept drinking. You know, this is just the way we live. Just kept going on from one party to the next, thinking everything's okay. And this feeling inside me is always churning, always churning. And I don't know what it is. I just feel like I'm not wired right. This is how I feel about myself. One of the things he was kind of jealous about my sailing world, so he decided we were going to go on a, uh, a surfing trip all the way down to Panama. So Bruce Myers got us a Volkswagen pop top, and it was all, you know, got, got it out and all redone inside, and off to Mexico we went. And uh, we had a good time. We were camping out everywhere, having a good time. I thought I'd dodge and gone to heaven when I got to the town of Tequila. You know, we were camped out, and this guy's but. And I went over to see what it was all about. And he had this great big gallon of white stuff. And it was $4. And he said, you, I'll try it. So, of course, I brought it back and let Tom drink it for a couple of days to see what happened. And he didn't die. So then it was mine again with my tequila. That's how I am. But it wasn't until we got to Guatemala that I found out that my true love was really a drug addict, drug dealing alcoholic. This is 1976, by the way. There's a revolution going on in, in uh Central America, South America, Central America, the people are getting killed left and right. I mean, there are gunfires going off. I mean, it was left and right. He did not want to mess with the federalities at all. And this is when I find out that he's dealing drugs, you know, so you better believe I drank all the way home. We did get down to a Panama. We came up on the, on the other coast and we were gone for about six months. And when I got home, something inside me said, I'm not living right. I'm just not living right. This has to stop. I have to be a grown up now. It's time for me to get serious about my life. I'm just fooling around. I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing, but it's time for me to get serious. And he had a, a home over, he had a lot of property over in Lahaina. So he moved to Lahaina and I stayed in Newport and I was going to get real serious about work, about my career, about my life. But whatever invisible line there is, I have long crossed over. I am now drinking in the bars of Newport Beach unattended. And those things that happened to women drinking unattended in the bars in Newport Beach began to happen to me and I got scared. And one of the things that happened to me was, you know, the, the, who was it they used to say the seemingly bad turns into the seemingly good? I was in a major car accident. By the time I got sober, I'd been in three major car accidents, drunk driving all of them, should have been killed in all of them. I'm hard to kill, you know, but I was in a bad car accident. He got wind of it and said, come on over tomorrow. Let's try it. Let's, let's try something different, you know? And there'd been a lot of whispers about my drinking. And there'd been some complaints about my drinking. But I always had a caretaker, someone taking care of business. So it wasn't much of a problem to me. And I also knew it wasn't the problem. It's the solution. See, when I'm not drinking, I don't know how to act. I, I, I feel strange. I don't fit in. I don't fit into my skin. I don't fit into your world. I just don't fit in. But when I pick up a drink, it's okay. So I overshoot the mark. What's the big deal? I'm not bothering anyone. This is how I feel. I'm not bothering anyone. Mind your own damn business. Leave me alone. But I could never figure out why I felt the way I felt when the people who loved me looked at me with that look and asked that question. Why do you do what you do? Why are you doing this? And I have no answer. I have no answer whatsoever. How can I tell them if I can't tell myself? And I just ignore them and I keep on drinking. And so here I am over in Lahaina. He was the opening bartender at Kimo's restaurant. 
when it was brand new and I got a job working for a tax man because I showed up for work. Hadn't filed in five years, but I got the job. And uh, I'd go to work and get out at work at five o'clock and he'd start work at five o'clock. I go over to chemo's just to have one drink, just to watch the sunset, just to hear one song. And I can never predict what will happen when I pick up a drink. And a lot of nights he get home before I did, closing the bar at 2.30 in the morning. And we used to have this game about drinking one side of Front Street and up the other, up one side and down the other. Let's not miss the bar. And I'm doing those things that alcoholic women do when they're out there drinking. And he gets wind of it and he throws me out. Do you have any idea how embarrassing it is to be thrown out for your drinking by a drug addict, alcoholic, drug dealer? It's embarrassing. And uh, I remember my friend Marilyn going, saying to Marilyn, what's wrong with me? I have all this bad luck with men. She goes, well, it's your drinking. Let's teach you how to drink like a lady. So we set out to try and teach me like a lady. Apparently we failed. Anyway, I'm working away and this one man had his eye on me and he offered me a job. He was a commodore at the Yacht Club, president of the Chamber of Commerce and he owned just about all the boutiques in Lahaina at the time. So I went to work for him. And part of my salary was a brand new Mustang convertible, little house on Front Street with a swimming pool, credit cards to do whatever I wanted, designer clothes, I'm all that. I am all that. I mean, who look, look at, I am somebody, you know? And this is when I had three lives. I didn't know this at the time, but this is when I started developing my three lives. My first life is I'm a businesswoman. I know how to get the job done. By God, I'll get it done. I'll show up at my desk. I might be throwing up when I get there, but by God, I'll get it done. Because you know, that's just what I have to do. I'm from Boston. That work ethic is so strong in me. Then I have my social life because, as I said, he's the president of the Chamber of Commerce and the Commerce of the Art Club. There's a lot of social activities going on. And I know how to sit my pousse and act like a lady and be a good hostess at some of these events. But then I have my third life, the life I just wait for all day long. And that's my drinking life. And when I'm through with all of the things I have to do on a daily basis, I'm out there drinking in these seedy bars of Lahaina with all the locals. And I'm a mouthy broad looking for trouble and I find it. I always find it. I'm looking for trouble and I can't tell you how many times I've been beaten up and thrown out, gang raped once, I mean, and never telling anybody anything about it. Going home, patching up the bruises, showing up the next day at work and not a word said about it, but back on those CD bars the next day, on and on and on. One beating was so severe, I decided I needed someone to take care of me. I didn't want to be left unattended drinking anymore. So I started working with people on the other side of the law and they would protect me. And as a result of that, I got into a lot of trouble. And when I get in trouble, there's one or two things I do. I either throw a punch or I leave. And so it was bad trouble and I hopped on a plane and I went back to my mom's house in uh, Lowell. I was on the wagon, you know, that vehicle with the wheels fall off when you're not paying attention, that wagon. And when I got there, I told my mom I didn't drink. I don't know why I told her that, but I told her I didn't drink. And I was here for a couple of weeks and I got the phone call. I'd been evicted from the house. The car had been repossessed, you know, fired from the job. Guy I was dating already had a new girlfriend. And here I am in Lowell, Massachusetts. And it's October, November. It's getting cold. And I just don't know what I'm going to do. And that's when I started the sneaky drinking. I told mom I didn't drink. And it was kind of cold. So first of all, I started off, I'd start sneaking a half pint up to my room. And then that wasn't enough, so I'd sneak a pint up to my room. Then it turned into a quart of whiskey. Then, you know, it's getting expensive. I didn't have any money. So there was a half gallon of burgundy wine. And I'm going to bed earlier and earlier and earlier. It's cold out, Mom. 
it's four o'clock in the afternoon. I got to go to bed now because I'm going to my room to drink. And I knew this was not right. You know, I had come to in the middle of the night. My mother's beautiful Irish linen had cigarette holes in it because I was a chain smoker at the time. Phone on my lap. You know, this is before call waiting and cell phones. Phone on my lap. Apparently I had to call Billy, my childhood sweetheart, at four o'clock in the morning that lived in Florida to say hello. I don't, man, this is, this is how I'm living. And I knew there was something wrong with this, even though I'm defending my right to drink. I just have bad luck. That's what I have. I have bad luck. So on January 4th, on my natal birthday, I left Lowell. And I waved goodbye to my mom, and I was going to New York to stay with my brother, Johnny. And I drank my way right back to Hawaii. I know I drank. We drank in New York. I ended up in Miami for a while. I drank myself in Miami. Then from Miami, went to L.A. And by the time I got on the plane to go to Lahaina, I had a couple of bucks in my pocket. My luggage had fallen apart, and everything is in two shopping bags. I have That's all I have in the world. But I'll figure it out. And I land in Honolulu and I have no place to go. At this point, I've gone through everybody. Long distance is hanging up on me. Nobody wants anything to do with me, but I'll figure it out. And I sat there and I remembered my friend Mary. She used to be my friend. And she was a tacky, tacky drinker. Her boyfriend threw her out. And when he threw her out, she came and she stayed with me. And I threw her out. I told one of my friends I threw her out because she smoked. I was afraid she would burn my house down. So the truth of the matter is I went home and all my booze was gone. So I kicked her ass right out the door. I care less where she landed. And because she was homeless, had no place to go, she ended up at this place called St. Francis Women's Alcoholic Treatment Center in Honolulu. And I hadn't heard anything about from her for a while. So I went to the telephone booth. You young people know what the telephone booth is, those big boxes. And they have books in there with names and numbers. And I looked her up and I dialed the number. And it rang and it rang and she said, hello, she was home. And I said, hi, I'm, in, I'm just passing through town. I thought I would check to see how you are. I thought she would hang up on me, but she was so happy to hear from me. And do you know, it was her one year anniversary in AA that they were having a party for her. Would I like to go? Well, sleep at the airport or go to the party? Of course I'll go to the party. So I took the bus down to Waikiki and off we went to her party. And apparently she told us counselors a little bit about me because when we got there, they're all hugging and kissing and rubbing up against me, so happy to see me, and paying all this attention to me, as they should, because this whole event never would have happened had I not kicked her out. Of course I deserve the credit. This is how I think, you know? And they said things to me about being sick and tired of being sick and tired, nothing about drinking. And I thought to myself, I wonder how they know how tired I am. I am so tired. And so at the end of the evening, we went, I told Mary, I hadn't checked her to a hotel yet. And she said, I'm going away for the week and you can stay in my condo. But come Monday, you're gone. You got that? You're out of here Monday, no matter what you do. Perfect. It's Friday. <laughs> Monday's a long way away. But I'm smart. I'm an educated woman. I know if I go into that treatment center, no matter what they say, I want to have this label, alcoholic, follow me around. And I can't have that. I know I'm gonna, I know someday I'm gonna be rich and famous and I cannot have that label. Alcoholic, follow me. Mind you, I'm homeless and I don't even realize that and I'm worried about what's gonna happen when I'm rich and famous, ha. Huh. And so I just proved to him, I knew it wasn't drinking, I had issues. I needed a boyfriend, I needed a home, I needed a car, I needed some money, I needed all these things. Drinking is not the problem. So, but to prove it, I'm gonna prove I'm not an alcoholic. So I had other friends and I called them and I sailed the next day all through all beautiful Hawaiian day, dusk to dawn, you know, we just sailed and sailed. They drank, I didn't. See, drinking's not the problem. Then the next day's, um, uh, what is it, Valentine's Day. 
and they all gather in the park, the music, the food, the dancing. It's so much fun. And I was there all day long with all my friends. I did not drink. I'm not an alcoholic. I don't know what this, why do people complain about this? But there's the next day is Sunday. And on Sunday, this hole opens inside me from my nose to my toes. When I was growing up, all my friends, we had to go to church and communion on Sunday and catechism. Then all my friends would go home and they'd be with their families and they'd cook dinner in the parlor and they'd gather around and they'd plan their week and they'd do their homework and get together, maybe go on a picnic. And I was left alone. I was always alone. And I was a throwaway kid. That's exactly right. I was, I was a throwaway kid. No one cared where I was or what I did. And I just wander around going, someday, someday, I will belong to something someday. And that hole, that pain was so great. You know what happens when you feel like that. I go to my favorite watering hole, the Yacht Club. And I go into the Yacht Club and I look around. There's a merchant marine in the corner. I gave him a smile and he slid it on over to see me. This was 41 years ago. It was still pretty hot. He came right on over. And uh, we started talking. And he said, I told him I was thinking about moving to Honolulu, which he thought was a grand idea. So we went to dinner, then we went to the movies, and then he decided to show me the city lights of Tanlas to entice me to move to Honolulu. And on the way up the hill, he bought a half gallon of burgundy, took the top off and handed it to me. And after we went to Tanlas to see the city lights, and I drank an entire half gallon of burgundy all by myself. He didn't drink. He was in the corner smoking his joints, having his own trip. And I remember, never want to forget this. I didn't know it from any, I, all these things that happened to me in my sobriety, I had no idea what was happening to me. But what happened to me, I, I was up there, I'm drinking this wine, going, how, how did this happen? How did I end up like this? I'm somebody, I'm not a nobody. I have an education, I've worked, I've tried. I've been with the richest people in the world, the most famous people. How did I, how did I end up like this with no place to lay my head? I was so, so sad. The poor horsemen, the terror, the bewilderment, the confusion, the fear. I, I had no place to go. And because I had no place else to go, I, when I got pretty dropped me off, I took the bus up to Lilyhouse Street and I checked into St. Francis Women's Alcoholic Treatment Center simply because it's the only offer I had for a bed to sleep in. And I did not know this for many years, but I know it so truly today. That is the day that God put me in the palm of his hands and delivered me to you. I checked into that place. I looked around going, loving Jesus, just shoot me. I mean, these women, you know, the old ones and young ones and fat ones and skinny ones and black ones and yellow ones. And I'm looking around in the room going, oh, my God, this is the end of the line, end of the line. And I had a hangover from drinking that half gallon of burgundy so bad that it walked in the room ahead of me. And they, they, rank, they showed me to my little room. And all I wanted to do was sleep for about a week. And I'm up there for about 10 minutes and the bell goes off. Any treatment people here with the bell, ringy dingy dingy, we're gonna go to AA. I'm not going to AA. As I said, I know it's nothing but bulbous nose old men chanting waiting to die. I don't wanna go there. But my friend Mary said, you have to go. If you wanna stay here, you, this is part of the deal. So I get all dressed up and I'm a snob by the way, even though I'm homeless. And I put on my, I, uh, put on my felt hat with a big peacock feather, matching screen floor jacket. Calvin Klein jeans and designer jeans were brand new and even so I'll go to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was hot, all right. I thought it was really hot. It was about 99 degrees out. It was really hot. And they had all these greeters at the door and they're so happy to see me and I'm not so happy to see them. 
And all my classmates come to the front and they sit in the front and I sit by the back door in case I have to make my getaway. Because I'm looking around this room going, no way, I know. And the first woman gets up to speak and her name is Mary Lake. And she's up there chain smoking, telling these stories that no decent woman would tell her best friend in private. And she's telling a room this size, all these stories and you're clapping and cheering, Madam Malia, you're going to keep coming back. And I'm back there going, that woman has no breeding, no breeding whatsoever. And the next guy gets up, it's Big Richard, and he's big, and he talks pigeon, and he drives a garbage truck for a living, and he's been fired from his job, and then everyone moved out, even the dog wouldn't sleep with him. I looked at him, and I looked at her, and I danced back to that treatment center. I did not want what they had at all. I didn't want to catch it. I wanted nothing. All I heard were differences, no similarities whatsoever. But I have to stop here and tell you that I was two and a half years sober when I left Hawaii. And uh, I kept going to meetings simply because I had no place else to go. And uh, I got my nurse's license back and I was working in this local hospital, Kuikini Hospital. And Mary's husband, Harry, was dying of cancer. They started the first treatment center in Honolulu, the Hinamako. And he was dying of cancer. And she moved into the solarium with her futon. And all her sponsees came in and all her friends came in doing step work around all of his chemotherapy, all his treatments. And at night, Big Richard would show up with all those hoodlums from the Malia home group. And they'd be in the room smoking with the oxygen going on, laughing and cheering. The nurses were terrified of them. But what I realized many years later is that what they showed me was not talking sobriety, showing me what sobriety was. Showing me how we take care of one another, that we show up for each other no matter what. And it took me a couple of years to realize that. But not so the second day. Second day, I am done with it. Please, I'm not going back there. And the bell goes off. And Mary goes, well, this time we get to go in the van. Yippee, we get to go in the van. Aren't we happy, right? You know, and uh, plus you can get your cigarettes and your candy. Oh, boy, do I get in the van. <laughs> and I get my cigarettes and I get my candy. And I'm going to sleep this one out in the back. But on the way in, there were two, um, two Rolls Royces and a Mercedes. It is a program of attraction, right? And I saw that and I thought, well, maybe I'd been a little bit hasty. And I looked upstairs and there are all these handsome men with Aloha shirts, long pants, shoes and socks, smoking their cigarettes. And I said, well, I'll just try one more. So I got the peacock feather all adjusted and up the stairs I go. I'm standing here tonight because I'm sober on my resentments and my defects of character. But my God knows me very well and knows how to get my attention. Because this time at the podium, Blonde hair and blue eyes, the handsomest man I've seen in years. I knew instantly I'd been sentenced to AA to marry him. That's exactly why I'm here. And he was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous with a good program. He went to meetings seven nights a week, so I went to meetings seven nights a week. Two on Saturday, two on Sunday. I'm right there with him. Steps of Freedom is his home group. It became my home group. I'm living proof if you bring the body, the brain will follow. I followed him every place I went. I had, I had visions. I had vision that this is all I wanted was this man. And, you know, when I was in Steps to Freedom, they had these elections. And this woman next to me sticks my hand up in the air. And the next thing you know, I'm the damn literature person. I don't want to belong. I don't want anything to do with you. I just want to marry him, get him, get him away from you. And uh, they handed me this rack. This is a nice looking rack, by the way. They handed me this rack. It was all rusty and color jelly donuts and coffee stains all over all the literature. I was going to throw it out. I mean, I was embarrassed for you people. It was so tra it was trashy. And I'm on the way out the door and I hear this old man say, well, we better stop bringing literature to this meeting because she'll never show up. You know, we don't, you know, she's a loser, right? She'll never show up. We better stop bringing literature. And he made me angry. He made me, I'll show you. 
I'll show you good. So I took that rack home and I sanded it and I painted it. And I went down to central office and I bought every bit of literature they had. I had it alphabetized. I worked in high New jail, by the way. I had it alphabetized and color coded. I was like the band of white of AA. I'd read something. My literature announcement lasted for about 10 minutes. You know, and I just <laughs> read it, read it. And Big Richard was there and Mary Lake was there going, keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. And that's how I started. You know, I often wonder why I stayed in AA. Because I didn't, I wasn't an alcoholic. I stayed because I thought I had no place else to go. But while I was sitting in these rooms, I heard your story. You talked about what happened to you. And I would sit there and I'd hear your experience and your strength and I'd hear, especially your experience and go, that happened to me. Yeah, I felt like that. I began to defrost slowly by slowly by slowly by identification. I began to defrost, you know. And then one night, this woman sitting in the front row, you all know who they are beautiful makeup, beautiful designer clothes on, sitting in the front row with all their sponsors all around them. They're all pink and white and happy, happy to be sober, multiplying like rabbits every week. There's more and more of them. And this woman looks at me and looks, turns around and looks at me and asks me that question. What the hell is wrong with you? You keep showing up here and you get goofier by the day. What is your problem? I wanted to slap her through Friday. I mean, how dare she talk to me like that? But there were too many witnesses, so I didn't. And she's blah, 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 blah. I'm just waiting for her to stop so I could let her have it. Blah, 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 blah. And she stops. And the last thing I hear out of her mouth is, you meet me Coco's tomorrow night. And I let her have it. These words fall over my mouth. Yes, ma'am. I have no idea where they came from. And I met Blanche the next night. And she told me, you know, apparently, whatever you're doing isn't working very well. Why don't you give me 90 days and see, see what we can do? And she read the first 164 pages of the big book to me. And I thought, I can't do that. You know, but she, she was she's the only one paying attention to me. I was so lonely. She was the only one paying attention to me. I'd gotten a job as a cook up on Tantalus Drive, so I was alone all the time, you know. And uh, then she had the nerve to say to me, go home and write your fourth step. I'm not writing a fourth step. I'm not. Three principles. I told Donovan this day. I had three principles I live by. Number one, never, ever, ever tell anybody anything, ever. You never ever trust anyone because they will betray you. And you're always fine. You never tell anyone how you feel. You're always fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And all, you know, everyone thought this woman was a nice lady. She wasn't. She was really a bitch. You know, I call her with my issues. And all she says, you're writing, you should hang up. You're writing, you should hang up. And just out of mere curiosity, just mere curiosity, I decided, I'll see what this is all about. I'll just to get her off my back. And I have to tell all you need people, all you new people, the magic happens when pen hits paper, not pencil, not typing, not texting, pen to paper. I'm living up there all by myself. And I asked her, what do I write on? And she said, start when you were born. And I started to write and write. There's a direct line from your hand right to your heart. It bypasses your head for a reason. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote for hours. And there was nobody there but me. And when I was through and I put the pen down, I looked at it and I started to cry. I started to cry. I saw who I was. I saw what I had done. I saw who, where I had been. I'd moved 22 times, five states and two countries. You know, I lived with three men. All of them are dead because of alcohol today. I burnt a house down at Christmas because they blamed it on cheap Christmas decorations. Drove my boss's new car into the canal, you know, said it was raining, it was slippery. Always had an excuse. But more important, I broke the heart of everybody who loved me. 
I was a liar, cheater. I just took and took and took. And like I said, I broke the heart of everybody who loved me. And nobody put that on paper but me. And then Blanche insisted on me doing a fifth step. And I could not. I'm not telling her this. I'll be kicked out of AA. All you people say, keep coming back here, winner. If I read that to her, she would have said, there's the door. Get the hell out of here. We don't want your type here. But she insisted. Like I said, she was a nag. And she showed up at my house this day with this big bouquet of flowers the torch ginger, the pomeria, and I don't know where she took a little white candle out. She lit the little white candle and said, let's get on our knees, say the third step prayer and ask God to help you get honest. And we did that. And I got on my knees and prayed to a God that did not believe in. And I sat on the couch and something happened. I sat there and I told Blanche all my secrets and all my fears and all my resentments and all my guilt. It poured out of me like water out of a faucet. And I never, ever want to forget the power of one alcoholic talking to another. That beautiful face looking back at me, no recrimination, just smiling at me going, I think you did a good job. Why don't you stay here with your God and see if there's anything else you have to say, I'll meet you tonight. And I met Blanche that night and there were some things left. And so we had coffee and I shared with her. And I know today that is the day I walked freedom from bondage. I've been free ever since. I did not realize this. Like I said, a lot of things that happened to me, I don't realize at the time, but it's like the weight of the world fell off my shoulders. And I've been sober, you know, I can tell you 10 years of sobriety, I got into a relationship and I moved back here when I was two and a half years sober. I was appointed to Mary Regan as a sponsor. She was a circuit speaker, brought me everywhere, introduced me to everyone get into a relationship with my first AA boy on AA campus. It was sick, man. Brought me to my knees. And as a result, Lynn Wilder wrapped me up and he sent me to Clancy. And Clancy told me these things. He taught me. I'm sober today because of what I learned about the structure and discipline of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not what I think. It's not what I know. It's not what I feel. It's what I do. And if you do what I do, your problems will disappear from the flat. And so far, that's been true. Um, I just keep prancing along. I've done this pro. I've always had a commitment. I believe in service. And why I believe in service so much is that after I'd done the steps in Honolulu, Hurricane Eva decimated the island, decimated it. It was no communication whatsoever. The whole island was black. No phones, no nothing, black. And I have the literature in my car. And all I can hear is that old man, she won't show up. And I thought, what the hell? I'm not going to, no, he's not going to say I'm a loser. So I put it in my pinto and I started weaving down the hill. And if anybody knows Tanlis, it's like this all the way down. It's steep, dark, trees in the road, raining, windy. And I got to the bottom of the hill and I turned around the corner and there's a little white candle in the window. They were there. And I pulled it to the parking lot and I get out of the car and I'm setting up my literature. And I heard someone say, Carol's here with the literature. And that same old man said, of course she is. She's as solid as they come, as solid as they come. And I'm there putting it up, overwhelmed with this feeling. I belong. I belong to this program. I belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm doing the deal. And you know, it's such a, what's our legacy? Our legacy here is, what is it? Service, the literature, even though I hated it. Gives you unity, makes you belong, gives you recovery. Those are the three things that happened to me. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not stupid. If it works, it worked in Hawaii, it'll work every place else. I've always had a commitment. Um, along the way, people ask me to sponsor them. And I often wonder why. 
Do you hear who I am? And you know, and you know, as I say over and over again, there's no not a greater honor in the world than people coming to you saying, Will you help me? And I do. I see them, they come in with their broken hearts and broken lives, and I see them put their lives together. And by seeing their lives come together, I see my life come together. And I always share this when I'm at the podium because you know, you see God everywhere once you're sober for a while. Once you start getting your eyes inward, looking at yourself, you look out at the world and you see God everywhere, everywhere. But where I see him the most is in you, in people, all of us. And any childbearing woman I sponsor, if she gets pregnant, wait. I'm on my way to the delivery room. Cross your legs. I'm on my way. And they've all obeyed. Because to me, the absolute God's perfect creation is us and you see that newborn baby come into the world and I check out its nose and its toes and its eyes and its ears I'm usually the second person to hold it and I see perfection absolute perfection and I'm always overcome with the same feeling this is how you came into the world this is how it came into the world and everything we have learned that is negative we have learned it and because of the power of this program power of it a strong sponsor you got to get a sponsor you need to have someone guide you through this between the sponsor and the 12 steps you get to a life of grace and dignity the three most important gifts i have gotten from this program the three most important are the ones i carry with me daily and that is i have a quiet mind my mind is quiet and i have love in my heart and i have peace in my soul and because of you i love like i said a, a life of of dignity and grace. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. Thank you.